Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to introduce you to David, a life science entrepreneur, inventor and investor, currently managing the health focus fund of Pictet Group, one of Europe's largest private banks. He was previously a venture partner at Vesalis Biocapital 3, one of Europe's leading life science funds, and got his experiences in VC with Kaisha Capital investing in a mix of funds and startups. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are, and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. David, welcome to the European VC. It's great to have you today here. How are you? Great, great. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for hosting me. First and foremost, I want to go on record to say that I am very happy about this episode. Many people might not know this among our listeners, that David was actually one of the people that helped me the most get into venture a while back. And as we go through the episode, you'll hear his story and you'll see where probably our, our fates <laughs> kind of mixed together. But I just want to say it. It's super cool to have David. David, I'm really happy to have you. And I'm going to shoot it over to Andreas to kick it off. So I don't know you at all, David. So so please tell us a bit about you. Who are you? Why do you think that we invite you here on the European VC? Well, at least it was not just to pay for the beers that David still owes me for the little help <laughs> I gave and not the very large help you still uh, get. You're, you're always in a different country. <laughs> but I'm happy to. So like David here, I'm, I'm originally from Portugal. I am an engineer by training, specialized in bioengineering. And then I, I started a non-willing scientific career. And I say non-willing, it's at the beginning I was fully convinced that I did not necessarily like science. I actually was really more on the route to do, I don't know, traditional consultancy or, or something else on, on the corporate side of, of life. But I ended up decided to take the opportunity to go to Imperial College and to do a, a master thesis on stem cell differentiation. And that actually confirmed pretty much what I said before. I kind of like disliked it a lot. I spent nine months in a dark room trying to find out if the cells I was preparing, meaning if I was I was trying to make lung cells and to inject them in, in animals. And I spent nine months trying to find if those cells would get to the lungs of, of the animals and I failed dramatically by doing so. <laughs> uh, and so it was pioneering times. It was an amazing team at Imperial College, really pioneers on the field of, of stem cell research. And then after that, I was kind of like in, in the final steps of interviews with some of the, the big consultancy companies. And one of my good advisors, the head of the degree I've taken in, in technical in, in Portugal, called me and said, you know, we are preparing this new program between MIT and Portugal. And I think you are a good candidate for and kind of said, yeah, but I don't really think so. And he said, you know, in your fields, advanced studies are going to be necessarily and if you don't do it now, you won't do it. And then you are going to be 50. You are going to say something you regret having said in one of those corporate structures. You are going to be fired. And then what? So you are competing with people with much better training than, than yourself. And that was actually the rational argument for me to end up doing a, um, a PhD. PhD. 
Luckily on that one, I really like doing the PhD for, for, I think, two main reasons. One, I was embedded in an ecosystem that was non-existing in Europe. So I went to Boston, to MIT, and there people thrive on entrepreneurship, correct? In the lab that I joined, my PhD advisor there had created several companies. My PhD colleagues were creating companies in parallel to their, to their studies. And this was in Europe back in 2007, 2008, not heard of in any fields, not even in tech, right? We are prior to the entrepreneurship revolution in Europe still. And this was life-changing for me. So that's one. And then second, the resources you have in places like Boston for Biotech are completely different. So I could actually do more and, uh, and achieve more. And so that was quite the opening for a career post-science related to science, but not with the part I dislike. That was the fact of the execution of science itself. So being in the lab by petting is not something I thrilled. Actually, looking at the data you generate posts and understanding what to do with it is something that I really like. And that's how I, I got into moving towards the life science field and think about how to develop products that would change the life of patients, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor in those companies. Super interesting, but I want to ask you something very specific about your journey into venture, which is, and I don't want to shed too much light, but the interesting part is that you started on kind of a very different way as most people we know starting in, in the venture industry. So I'd love to hear your story of, okay, you told us all about your education, your background, how you got into, into biotech to some extent, but how did you get into venture specifically? Yeah. It's quite different indeed, but it starts with me failing a company. So I think that's the, the beginning of, of this story. So, so post my studies, I, I did create a company with some PhD colleagues and good friends uh, so far. Um, to, our, and uh, to our listeners, David, sorry for interrupting, to our listeners, it was in together with a previous guest of ours, correct? Indeed, with, with Daniela Kot. Yeah, one of our uh, highest listened episodes, actually. <laughs> Indeed. So me, Daniela, and, and two others started a venture. Quite a journey, quite the learning experience for all of us. But unfortunately, at some point in time, we could not raise uh, enough money to do the next step of development for the product. And we can touch upon that uh, a little bit later on. But from there, I, I was challenged by a good friend that was heading a new venture capital strategy within the, the main Portuguese bank, which is called called Caixa, not the Spanish one. It's the Portuguese state-owned bank, the largest bank in the country. And at this time, and, and a little bit fast forward to the beginning of the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Portugal that now is known a little bit uh, all over the place, Caixa had this mandate to support the development of this emerging ecosystem, but no one wanted to have a money-losing strategy, correct? If, if the strategy starts with supporting an ecosystem, you immediately think, okay, we are going to, to lose money. So that was not the purpose, and we were investing money out of the balance sheets of the bank, and this was a state-owned bank. So in the end, we were investing indirectly uh, money from all the, the taxpayers and the citizens of the country. And so what we came up with was an interesting strategy that was, we need to do two things to support the ecosystem. We need to bring knowledge, and knowledge is smart money. We need to bring international VCs to come locally and invest in, in Portuguese companies. And we need to invest in the companies and to almost work as an anchor investor so that the companies have enough resources to then move to de-risk their products before being able to go, to go global. The idea that the team had there was quite interesting was, so why don't we set up a fund of funds practice which hopefully is going to generate enough profits 
to pay for the higher losses we might have while investing in local companies in a mature ecosystem. And so that's what was the setup. The idea is that we put one euro in uh, in a fund, that fund returns at least two euros, so we can take that profit of one euro and investing that into companies. And we've done so. Actually, that team built a, a great portfolio. Uh, I, I was helping out on the life science practice. Uh, others under Stefan, like Ricardo, were doing tech with, with Walter. And this was really a booster of the Portuguese ecosystem for, I think, three main reasons. One, we became anchor LP in pretty much all the local funds and and business angels, super business angels type structure. So this gave local liquidity to the market in order to invest in companies. Two, we did invest in international funds and brought them to Portugal to see companies, not only through annual events, but also by an LP relationship with them that was close enough so that they would actually come and look to companies. And that actually led into the first international rounds into Portuguese companies. And third, because we also invested directly into companies and leveraged the ecosystem. So even if an international fund did not invest in in one of our companies, we actually could leverage ecosystem to help that company with experience, with access, with contacts and, uh, and so on. And so we created really this pioneering institution in the ecosystem that was followed by other state-owned players like Portugal Ventures that were being built and now with more private funds. And actually some of the teams spun out from Casha to start their own funds like Indico in uh, in Portugal uh, and myself in in Life Sciences after that uh, as well. So it was quite an interesting way into venture capital. Uh, uh, Just a note there to our more kind of long-term listeners the colleague David is talking about is actually Stefan, who we've also had the pleasure to have. Uh, and he was actually, I think, one of our first five guests or six guests, something like that, way back in the beginning. It's interesting, right? Because you did a mix of, you know, so founder, as you say, field founder, <laughs> going into VC, but then doing a mix between LP and, and investing into startups. I'd love to ask you, what are the learnings there? Because as you know, most of our listeners are emerging and aspiring VCs. And most of them are listening and, and you know, think, ah, that's different. That's not something I normally hear. For me, so I've learned everything I know about managing. So let's not forget, I'm a retired scientist with, with an engineering background. So I have no formal management or financial training in, uh, in my life. So everything I learned about managing finances and, and investing was through my experiences as an entrepreneur, and then as an LP, so that later I became a GP and now back to a GPLP. <laughs> Mixed position. It's quite striking for two reasons. One is by having the ability to interact at the different level with GPs. So when you are an LP into their funds, you actually have yeah. deeper connection with them. You can share more, you learn better how they do things. It was an amazingly unique learning experience. So I could understand the regional differences in Europe versus the US, how people prepare a term sheet, what is there in their mind? What are the triggers for exit? What are the milestones that they're looking for? So that's one. Second, I was de facto an LP. So I understood the concerns of an LP when they invest into a fund, correct? So what are you looking for? The team, yeah. the stability of the team, the ability to drive returns, the access they have to deals, correct? Are they accessing top uh, level deals or are they just following the, the crowds? How differentiated are them? And I learned this because Cash had an ongoing LP strategy and team already, correct? So we created this strategy from scratch, but Cash had a lot of experience in being an LP in other funds. And so we could actually learn from the years of accumulated experience, what is done correctly, what are the good practices, what are the alignment of incentives, what are the terms for the market. And this allows me, when I fundraise, to really think on what people are thinking when they're looking into investing into a fund, correct? So I think I understand their questions in a different manner because I I can understand really the concern they have 
when they ask a question about the team or about the age of the more senior members or about the track record or the pull of downs, I understand where those come from. And I think for me, that was quite unique to be able to build up my own knowledge set to be a good LP investor and, and to be a good GP investor as well. So David, I'm curious because I know that David Cruz spent quite some time with you when we were working on our, on our model for our LP syndicates, where we say that people should be investing small tickets into VC funds to get that exposure, get some of that understanding. And you guided David quite a bit in that, because I've heard, of course, David talk about that guidance and counseling. But I'd love to hear, what did you first think when David came to you and said, hmm, maybe we should enable upcoming GPs and people in the VC ecosystem to invest into VC funds. I'd love to hear your initial reaction on that from you and not David. <laughs> I think it's more a challenge on, on execution than rather the idea. I think it just makes perfect sense. And, and if we go even broader, you see large private equity and hedge funds in the US trying to create partial shares so that people with less affluence in terms of, of their capital availability can partake in the big returns. And I think there are three reasons around that. So one is if you can access certain types of funds and investments, you can actually with a minimal effort on your side, uh, really create a high return part of your savings. Uh, and that's, I think, fundamental for any person worldwide. It doesn't really matter how much money you have. If you can put some money to work while you are doing your day job and so that you can increase your wealth and save for the future, that's critical. And I think in Europe, we don't do that enough if you compare Europe and in the US. Just even if you think about your pension, US system is all about the 401ks where this is actually investing and, and putting money into the markets and into work. In Europe, most countries is the state is going to give me some type of, of pension when I retire and I don't really care about it in any manner, correct? Not even by working towards contribute to growth so that the budget of the state is sustainable, much less about understanding how can my current money generate money in the future. So I think that's one uh, pillar. Two is actually almost impossible if you think about these types of structures for them to allow thousands of people in with, with small tickets. It doesn't work, correct? Like they are small structures in the end. If you think about the average VC in Europe, they have, I don't know, 15, 20 people if they are big. Sometimes they have three or four guys in the end. It's really impossible to manage this type of access directly from the GPs. And then I think third is in Europe, the LP base is actually very narrow. And we go back to the comparison with the US, where you have endowments in a lot of institutions that want to diversify their returns, where you have pension funds that need to diversify their returns. And we all know that to have a good portfolio, you need to have percentage of assets in, in different types of strategies, and private equity and VC should be one of those. And so since in Europe, this pillar does not exist, actually our LP base is narrow. So if you can create some sort of structure that enables to actually address all of these three, uh, you are not only allowing people to do something good with their money, you are changing a little bit the way we think in Europe on how to invest our money, and you are enlarging the LP base in Europe, hopefully then giving more firepower to the funds, and that is actually going to, to enable the most important part, which is to put that money at work into companies, to create more jobs, to develop wealth in Europe, and hopefully to rise the quality of life of everyone around. So I think the idea is great. We see it starting to pop in different formulations from some funds doing partial shares in, in legal structures, some others creating syndicate clubs, some guys like you creating LP positions that you then take care of the back office so that it's a single LP position towards a fund and you allow people to join in. But I think it's really something that we as a society must 
strive to do and not really just let the people with more money have access to these types of, of opportunities. And now in the institution I, I am with, that it, it's clear, correct? We manage money from iNetwork individuals. It's fairly easy for them to put their money at work without a lot of involvement on their part and make that money multiply. And if we don't allow others to partake in these types of investments, we'll just increase the symmetries and that's not sustainable for, for anyone. It tease out a... Uh policy-oriented comment from your side on that? Or, or would you shy away from that being part of Big Tech? No, no, no. Actually, so even even if I go back a little bit then to, to cash and, and part of what we discussed for Portugal and the emerging ecosystem. So Portugal created what we call, I'm not sure the, the good translation in English, but a fund for the sustainability of the social security system in Portugal. So it means that we put a part of the money on the side in a fund. That fund should generate returns in the case the state does not have enough money to cover the pensions, that fund kicks in. And if you look at what they're doing with the funds, they are buying Portuguese debt for at least 50% of the funds. And now you think, okay, we created a fund for the case that the Portuguese state does not have money, which buy bonds for the Portuguese state. So half of the fund is gone in the event the fund is needed. <laughs> And you think this is, one, not good portfolio strategy. Two, that fund should actually be deploying. It doesn't need to be a, an insane amount of money, but 1%, 2% of its assets under management, which is 14 billion. So it's quite a lot of money to do private equity and, and VC. And they don't do it. And this is at a corporate structural fund level. Then if you, on the flip side, look at countries in Europe where you have significantly higher LP money availability, you actually see that there are very smart fiscal incentives structured in such a way that you really need to go through the fund business industry and support it. So in the UK, you have the seed investment scheme, which is people putting money into companies or through funds. In the Netherlands, you actually have income tax rebate if you invest in funds of funds that then invest in local funds. And that's why in the Netherlands, you have one of the highest ratios per capita of VC money in Europe. Yeah. In France, you also have income tax rebates for people that invest into funds and invest into innovative companies. So I think there should be a policy, de facto, more structured. And I think Europe could actually do that in a structured manner with a small percentage of the budget or even with that digital tax that they want to create to incentivize people to actually diversify their assets and to incentivize the appearance of structures that solve, I think, one of the main roadblocks for this, which is we, I go back to this. It's impossible for GPs to accept 5K or 1K tickets. It's never going to work. It's not how the industry is. It should be structured. But there should be, I don't want to call them middlemen, but people in between that help the non-professionals to do two things. To veto the opportunities of investment, so to help them understand if this is a manager that does A, B, or C, if they should put their money there or not. So help do the due diligence work for non-qualified investors on one hand, and then towards the funds themselves, help structure this pool of money in a way which is usable for the funds. So I think from a policy perspective, we should be de facto thinking about this because I go back to the original point. If we do not want asymmetries to carry on increasing, and if you don't want those news every time there is a crisis, there is a news saying the rich became richer and the poor became poorer, is because during the time of crisis, they had money at work for them. They actually did not do anything for that, but their money was parked in structures that could leverage the opportunities in good times and in bad times, where people with less money can only really leverage shares when the markets are booming and they are completely outside of the private markets. And if I go back to life science in, in this sentence, 
95% of the market of life sciences is private, correct? Only a minor, minor, minor stake of biotech companies go public or are public companies. Only a small portion of the large corporations in, in the life science field are actually public companies, but 95% of them are private. And so you can see if you do not access private equity and venture capital, you are only looking at 5% of the market and a market which is, of course, significantly more exposed because when there is a global crisis, markets go down, your current positions go down, whereas in private markets, we see significantly better uh, an uncoupling between these two realities and particularly in life sciences. That bridges us perfectly to what I wanted to talk next, but also a very timely topic, you know, <clears throat> life science being quite robust in terms of economic cycles, right? And I'd love to come back to your journey in VC already, so post-starting in, in VC. And then you left Kaisha, right? And you mm -hmm. joined Vazalis as a venture partner. Yeah. I'm sure there's there's details in there that I'm, I'm, I'm politely jumping, happy to hear them. But uh, what I would like to hear is, From your perspective, what is the business case to do life sciences in Europe? Why should people care? It's striking, I think, for life sciences. One is historical. Life sciences are counter-cyclical. I don't think they are counter-cyclical. It's just that, whatever, you are sick, you need to be treated, and you do not really necessarily think, oh, there is a war ongoing, so I'm not going to the doctor now. Hopefully, you can still afford, depending on the country where you live, but clearly in Europe, you still need to go to the doctor and you still get treated. So... Even in, in moments of crisis, the basis for the healthcare business is always there. It's delivery care, treating people. So that's one. I think second is likely one of the fields where you can feel good about making money because if you think about a nurse, if you think about a doctor, if you think about pharma industry, in the end, by doing your job, you are effectively, positively the life of a third person. And that can be major by enabling a, a therapy for cancer, by treating a, a rare condition. So this is really an industry where you can be aligned in terms of the output towards society and the alignment of interest from a financial standpoint. So that's the second. I think third, it is an industry where there is a lot of added value. And if you think about back to sustainability and growth for Europe and, and pillars for the development of the economy, it's an industry that uses highly qualified labor. So it's not cheap labor type of industry. It's an industry that for a period of years uh, has very high margins, which are reused in R&D very, very highly. So pharma and biotech are segments of the economy that reinvest more money into research and development of novel products. So there is this positive feedback cycle. And then there is a case of understanding why VC is relevant here. And I think it's, for me, the ultimate point, which is, how do you figure out the new treatment for cancer? So what's the path to do this, correct? And the path to do this is that there is a group of researchers in a university that has a scientific discovery, correct? They figure out a new receptor, meaning a new antenna in a cancer cell that you can use to target a cancer cell. Those guys are researchers, so they do not know how to develop products. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the pharmaceutical industry with large manufacturing capacity, large sales forces to deploy and to distribute this, this product worldwide. And by the way, when you get a product approved, you need to show that you can manufacture and that you can distribute it. Otherwise, you don't get the approval. So there is actually a requirement to enable access to that product, which is quite interesting, correct? So if you make a new airplane, you don't need to ensure that everyone gets access to the airplane. But if you approve a new drug, you need to make sure that you can deliver to all the patients that need it, which I think is, is an important point in terms of the perception we have from the pharma industry. 
But then how do you bridge those two worlds, correct? How do you bridge the pharma guys that know how to market, manufacture and distribute the product and the guys that had the, the brilliant breakthrough? And that's through startups. Uh, and in fact, if you look at FDA approvals, more than 60% of the drugs that every FDA approves every year came from a research institution where then developed by a startup that was funded by VC and private equity and then were acquired by pharma. So that's the business case for VC, is enable a small, nimble organization to be focused on transforming a breakthrough scientific discovery into a product to treat and to save lives, hopefully. Then if we complement with Europe, then I think it's critical. We are still one of the big powerhouses in terms of research and development. We produce more than half of, of those types of discoveries. We are still lagging behind in terms of being able to put those into the market. So it's still mostly a US-driven ecosystem. And so the opportunity is here, correct? You have the science, you start to have the funds, and you start to have the management teams. This means that the conditions in Europe are better from an investment standpoint. And I think the last one is the burn rate for a European biotech company these days is half of the burn rate for a US star company. And this is on the non-value creation, if I can put it like that, meaning this is on offices, on lab space, on non-core activities for the company. So we can be actually significantly more efficient in Europe by developing the drugs here. There's one thing that uh, I just wanted to tease out because it's as well a timely topic and we've we've had a lot of chatter about it amongst our, our audience, which is it's also an interesting sector in terms of diversity when you look at it. I think it's, it's quite striking. So on the top, I think we are still a little bit behind of, uh, of the bottom, but I think we are we're making changes. And if, again, I go start with pharma, you have the first female CEOs of very large pharma conglomerates in, in the UK, in GSK, you, you have that example. But if I then go back to the other spectrum, you have a workforce, highly qualified, which is majority, but when I say majority, it's like a vast majority of women on, uh, on average on biotech. And this is just because you are looking for people with good qualifications, good scientific track records, and the majority of graduates from our universities are, are female in the fields of, of life sciences. So it's just natural that as startups start to to hire, there is a majority of females going into it. And so it's an industry that naturally at the entry levels, uh, for sure, and hopefully now at, at the higher levels, uh, is more diverse by nature, just because there is a higher preponderance. I, I think the second part is, this has been driving, I think, throughout the sector, now even a move into the VC space. And I think if you compare partnerships in life science funds to partnerships in tech funds, you see more and more women. You actually see several funds that are purely managed by women now. Some examples in Europe even of full female partnerships, which is on the wrong side of diversity on, on the other side, and, and I'm a male. So it's always weird to say this, but diversity is all about getting different viewpoints around the table. It's, it's not necessarily about, about something else. So diverse means diverse and does not mean a lack of one specific representation. And I think you start seeing that. But I think there is other levels of diversity that we see in life science. We also see ethnical diversity. You had non-Caucasian CEOs of, of large pharma companies. And so the field is, I think, on average, a little bit more diverse than others. But for sure, in the startups, I think we are one of the more uh, balanced, I would say, workforces uh, around. Out of curiosity, do you think that stems from the fact that it's primarily very academic backgrounds and academia has, I'd say, has a good track record in terms of being in front of the rest of the society on diversity metrics? So I think it is. Huh? Uh, it is. You are recruiting 
top talent, highly qualified, educated people. And in academia, as you mentioned, if you go from undergraduate to graduate, you see immediately that diversity reflects better than in companies, correct? The level of people that are doing PhDs and postdoctoral trainings is significantly broader in terms of, of backgrounds. And I think we just reflect that back into the companies. I think still there is, and I have a lot of discussions around this with a lot of people, less female started companies, led companies. So there is less people starting companies that are non-Caucasian males or non-males yeah. in the industry to the point, for instance, in Boston now, uh, there is a series of initiatives that they realize that, uh, and Boston is kind of the mecca, so that's why I keep referring to it. If you look at the number of companies that the male professor at MIT or Harvard creates and the, the number of companies that the female professor creates, it's striking the difference. And so some of the more entrepreneurial uh, female professors in in the ecosystem started now an initiative to try and and help female professors to create more companies. And funny enough, the conclusion of after speaking with all the people that had brilliant ideas but did not think about why to create a company was, yeah, but I have the lab, I have the teaching, I have the kids, I don't have time for the company. And so the conclusion was, if they had money to support babysitting more, they would be more entrepreneurial. And so they are Mm -hmm. testing out this initiative now, which I think is still striking in the sense that it still lays more on women, even highly educated uh, women, to take care of the family. And and it's not a shared burden, but it's good to see that they're trying to test out this hypothesis. If we complement childcare for female uh, faculty, will they be more entrepreneurial in, in the end or not? So I guess in a couple of years, we'll see if this pans out or not. But is it something, for instance, that started with life sciences and you have not seen in tech yet. So trying to balance out the number of companies per lab that comes out in the end. So David, that was a bit of a um, detour, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy that we did it anyways. But I would like us to get back to your story and how you ended up where you are now, because you shifted away from Kasia into Vesalius and you joined there as a venture partner. I'd love to hear the rationale behind that and what that taught you. So I think we go back a little bit in time there. So at the time that sell to be was trying to fundraise for the last series, there were two main funds that were uh, interested and one committee that was Vesalius to the round. So Vesalius was leading the round for investment of Lim and then Forbian was also considering joining the round at this point. And funny enough, by different routes, me and Daniela, the, my co-founder, ended up in, in those two organizations. And so in Vesalius, the idea of a venture partner was for me to have a dual role, so help on investment decisions, due diligence, and so on. And second, to eventually help out in earlier stage portfolio as, as an interim uh, manager of that portfolio. And so that was the rationale for me joining Vesalius 3 as, as a venture partner. I was kind of replacing one of their previous venture partners, Mark, that had been promoted or, or joined the fund as managing partner from Fund 2 to Fund 3. That was the idea that I could complement for sure the technical side of Zelius and, and hopefully the interim manager. It ended up being that I only did the first part, so the, the investment uh, part with Vesalius, because in the process, I, I kind of fell in love with the research from another Portuguese scientist uh, around the relationship between the innate immune system and the peripheral nervous system. And I ended up creating a new company called Lim that I served as interim manager. And that was massively earlier stage for Vesalius than what, uh, what Vesalius could invest. So I ended up in parallel with Vesalius being the, the first, the founding CEO of that company and raising money with, with other funds for that company, which is still alive. And I, uh, last year, recruited a new management team with, with more experience than me to take over from, from the company. So it's still ongoing. So hopefully we'll be able to transform some of those scientific discoveries into products. 
in the middle of, of all this, I kind of had to decide two things in my life. So what I wanted to do, so which side of the table I wanted to do, because contrary to the US, it's more difficult for people in European funds to be entrepreneurs and investors at the same time. And if you look at the majority of Boston-based funds, that's what they do. They create companies from scratch and they manage those companies like Flagship, Atlas, Third Rock, and, uh, and so on. But our LPs in Europe are still a little bit more stringent in the way they see the industry evolving and the way they administer the market rules for the industry with less leeway. And so I had to decide in which side of the table I wanted to be. And I also want, needed to decide in which geographies I wanted to be exposed to. So I think those were the two main decisions. And then... Uh, Kind of randomly through a headhunter, I, I got a literally a cold call from from a headhunter that I'd never interacted with, and I have interacted with a lot of headhunters in the past, but not this one. Again, I do not have a financial background, and it was a financial background headhunter. He started talking to me about the idea of joining Pictet because Pictet was launching a new healthcare strategy inside their private equity arm. And I must confess that my original reaction was no. I, I was in Kasha, and I suffered a lot through what was the bailouts of the bank and the consequences that had on a business that was actually doing quite well and still is. And I was not looking forward to join a big corporation in the end. And so the discussions went back and forward for a while. This was a, a lengthy process, but I think there were two reasons that made me actually ended up deciding to do this. One was the ability to invest in the US. And I've been going back to the US market in this chit chat quite a lot. And it's still yeah. the perfect market in, in the life science industry because it goes from science to pharma and it has all the steps in the value chain well oiled in the beginning. And for people that do a lot of work in the US, the email works faster in the US. I'm not sure if it's internet connection. I'm assuming it's not. But there is another dynamic into US business than in European business, which I was missing a little bit in my life after being <laughs> back in Europe. And then the second part was actually that the very positive side of Kasha was that I did find the beauty of the synergies between the LP and the GP positions. And so if you have a good LP practice, you can actually create an ecosystem that it's very positive for your GP practice. You can have a set of people around you that are hopefully smarter than you, that you can learn from, that you can have access to, that you can invite to join into your syndicates and bring to help your companies. And this is massively positive for the investment decisions you make as a GP. And the idea of, of the Pictet Fund was exactly the same, was to come up with a mixed GP-LP practice to the market. Following, uh, in all honesty, everything that Pictet does already in other verticals, there is a tech fund, there's going to be an environment fund, there is a generalist buyout fund in, in the private equity. So that we roughly managed 35 billion in the private equity group inside the 700 billion of assets that Pictet manages overall. So we are a very small fish in that pond. But it's a strategy that, again, can benefit from having me and, and another colleague, Jan, specialized in, in the industry, pushing it forward, but really drink from all the knowledge there is on the fund of fund investment activity at Pictet established for more than 30 years. And that's what we're trying to build, really. From Europe, a good LP into life science funds that can be reliable, that can help managers evolve and, and be up to standards, that can be loyal. And this creating an ecosystem to enable good GP investment decisions in the end. And that's how I ended up joining Pictet and being in, in a large corporation uh, again. David, I would actually like to give you some airtime here to tell us exactly. So at Pictet, what are you looking for? What, what are you, you specialized on to our listeners if they're launching or 
raising a new vintage or whatever in life sciences? Should they reach out to you? Yes or no? So give us what you guys get excited with. Yeah, the answer is yes, they should. We are likely one of the very well-structured LPs in Europe, all private money. So we do not have all of those constraints that other LPs in Europe have of, of inducing geographic restrictions and so on. So first, we are a fund, correct? It means that we do fundraise as well. And we do that ideally for every third vintage, meaning that one fund would cover three vintages of the market. So our fund is vintage 2022, meaning that we'll be investing out of this fund 22, 23, and 24. We do that for both companies and funds in the healthcare space, even more broadly. So we, we cover three main strategies inside. So Therapeutics is going to be 50% of the fund, both as GP, as LP. Uh, and here we go from early stage, I would say Series A, all the way to crossover rounds and funds that do that and companies that are on these stages. And on the remainder, 50% of the fund, we split it on 30% that we call technology-enabled healthcare. So it's a big bucket that covers pure digital health companies, but also med tech or diagnostic approaches in the field. Again, looking at funds that are specialized in these sub-verticals uh, and companies uh, alongside it. And then we have a small allocation towards more buyout transactions in the healthcare space. And these are typically for the value chain of uh, drug development, meaning CROs, CDMOs, care providers, and so on. And, and again, looking to funds like that. So if you are setting up a strategy along one of these verticals, yes, we should be uh, in touch and looking forward. We are looking at, at teams that are stable, that can show that they have unique differentiation in the market. Also that they are focused, correct? I, I don't think we, we can be doing everything. And so that they cover one of the niche areas that we are covering inside and they can show that they have the ability to provide returns. I would say we are a global mandate as well. So we cover US, Europe and Asia. So it does not really matter from a mandate where yeah. you are placed. Yeah, I'm going to ask you uh, if you can to deep dive a bit on the investment strategy. And what I'm trying to hint into here is a lot of lot of micro funds there. And what I'd love for you to share with our, our listeners here is how small is too small <laughs> for something that would make sense for you guys. Yeah, small is big for us, uh, <laughs> I, I would say, in the sense that we do write some good checks depending on the size of the fund. And we, of course, do not want to be owners of the fund in the end. So that's one side of it. Second side of it is we are really long-term investors. And so sustainability it's critical and sustainability comes in a fund manager with assets under management, of course, that you have yeah. a team that can be well compensated for that. So, so I think funds that are lower than 50 million for us are, are small and yeah. very unlikely that we would move forward. But if you think about sweet spot, it's even larger funds, correct? 250 yeah. million and above, yeah. that's going to be the sweet spot. But in the end, if you do serve one of the sub-verticals we cover, and in some areas like digital health, you do not have a lot of players in the market, then yeah. our guidance can be a little bit more broadened than if yeah. you are a biotech fund. And it's always good to build a relationship early on. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and we exactly. do tend to take some time to get to know the managers properly. Yeah. I, I'm i not sure if I want to do this, say this or not, but I've been in the due diligence process on, on the other side, never with Pictet as, as a GP. And actually the due diligence process of Pictet is quite intensive and detailed. And so uh, it's good to build a relationship with us with time uh, so that there is confidence in, in both sides. And eventually it's not this vintage, but then we can become an investor in, in the next vintage. I know you hesitated in saying that because we tend to say, you know, how long processes, we, we tend to bash them. But actually yesterday we had a, a session with a good friend of ours from Isomer, Chris Wade 
where we were talking about the changes in the market and what that means for both LPs, but GPs as well. And he said something that I agree, you know, FOMO left the room. Now it's it's time for evidence. And so maybe it's not a bad thing that the, that the DD processes are a bit more, more detailed. Let's put it like that. So ours is not long. Huh? We can do everything in five weeks. It's detailed. So you need yeah. to have time to dedicate to us and to answer all the questions and, and, and to create prepared. that. Yeah. But of course, to do a, a shorter process, if there is a relationship, is always good, correct? Like if you yeah. you know the people and you understand what they're doing, and then going through the evidence, uh, it's going to be that. And, and I think for life sciences, that's particularly true if, if you think about the FOMO, because with the pandemic, there was a... <laughs> a significant influx of non-specialized money coming into biotech companies. And biotech companies are a technical business, correct? The average biotech company is a money loser. It's going always to be a money loser. So it's not about the business itself. It's about the ability to develop a product. And if you think about non-specialists, they have really difficulties in really being able to judge this properly. And that money disappeared with the crisis now. So it's all gone. And so it's significantly more difficult to raise money in the life science fields now than it was four months ago. And it's not related to the life science field itself. It's not related to the to the tech field. And so now it needs to be on, on evidence, both for companies and for funds that you can actually deliver on your strategy with, with good returns. David, we are running out of time in a recording session that was rifled with technical difficulties. So I just want to say a big thank you. We end our episodes with a quick fire round. And this is when we ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Yeah, ready. In life sciences, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? It's good. I really like the relationship between the nervous system and, and the immune system. And that's an area that still creates a lot of urticaria in the majority of, of people. And I also like complex modalities because I believe they are needed to, to tackle some diseases. So the average person is excited about antibodies. I'm excited about things a little bit more complex. <laughs> which speaks to your background <laughs> and, and to the recommendation you got back in the days to do the PhD. <laughs> Second question of the quickfire is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs in Europe who are fundraising right now? That's a difficult one. But, but I would say two or three things. Really be ready with, with evidence on what you are in terms of differentiation so that you can find your spot in the market. Then the second one, be creative in your LP base and figure out ways to access untapped pools of cash because the normal ones are going to be necessarily backing the established players right now. Third and final question of the quickfire is what can we expect in the future from David Bragamalta? Uh, that's a question that I wish I would have the answer, but hopefully that I've contributed to put some products in the market that are going to be able to better the lives of, of patients with severe uh, diseases. That would be my wish. Awesome. David, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having you today. It was a pleasure being with you guys today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.